Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 34. That'll be our text for this evening. You'll notice in your Bibles the subscript of the Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And as we consider this, you'll remember the story where David does flee to Gath there before King Achish. Here it's uh, titled or called Abimelech, which would have been simply just the title for a king, much like uh, Pharaoh would be a title of a king. Uh, his real name was Achish, and David goes to him and pretends to be insane, which I think that the Bible rules as being something that was uh, foolish of David to do. But yet, as David looks back on that point in time, he recognizes that it was the Lord that had rescued him. And something that we ought to notice of this is if, in fact, it was foolish for David to change his behavior in the way he did and fleeing to Gath as well, when he looks back on being rescued by God, he doesn't speak of his foolish mistakes. Doesn't mention them. He leaves those out of the whole entire story. He solely focuses in on how the Lord rescued him. Let us be reminded of this. And when we remember the Lord's help, it's in spite of our foolishness that we are rescued. And let us follow David in this sense too, to not look back on our silly mistakes as much as we look back on how the Lord, in spite of us, rescues us. And David doesn't lament on that. He doesn't focus in on that. He doesn't stay there at all. In fact, it's not even brought up. So let's hear this word of God. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the reading of the word of God, his perfect and errant word. And may he bless the reading of it. And there's something I would draw your attention to as we approach this psalm, is that David himself is embarking in on praise. And as he speaks of what he will do in worship of God, he invites others to join him continually. And he shows us why, just like in Psalm 33 that we looked at last Sunday evening, he tells us why we ought to. And in this sense here, it is through contrast where he is comparing how the Lord deals with the righteous in comparison to how the Lord deals with the wicked. And so we'll notice in these first three verses, it is a call to worship. It is a call to praise. Just like in Psalm 33, those first three verses were a call to worship. Notice what he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That is David's commitment to what he will do, is that he will worship the Lord, he will praise the Lord, and it will be continually pouring forth from his lips. Just think about this idea of continually praising. You know, think of some of the things that we are commanded in the Scriptures as we are to pray without ceasing. That is, to we are to adopt a life of prayer. And that prayer is not just for a set time, but that prayer is always coming forth from our hearts in communion with the Lord. We are called to continually rejoice. We're just not to rejoice sometimes, but our life is to be a a life of rejoicing. And what David sets forth here also is the, the same idea, is that the Christian life is truly a life of continual praise. And we're going to see why. But this put this in our minds here, is that we are called to worship God continually. It is so important that we are continually worshiping, but our mind is set in this sense. And if we tend to get bored as we look at these psalms and thinking, oh, another call to worship, David says, I will worship, David says, I will praise, okay, we've read that several times now. Let me just put this in perspective. As we try to develop an idea of the importance of worship. In John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. I know you're familiar with this story. But notice what Jesus says of worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth For the Father, listen to this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And John Owen, summing up his idea of worship is, is if anyone neglects the priority of worship, they have misunderstood the purpose of the church. 
That is why we are called together is to worship God. It is of the utmost priority and is of utmost importance to recognize who our sovereign God is and we recognize who He is through our worship according to His Word. And it not only is when we corporately gather, as David will make clear when he says, let us exalt His name together. There's a call for us to worship. And Jesus tells us that the Father is seeking such worshipers. And that means in the divine plan of election of the Father giving some to the Son, He has picked out a people to worship Him. So our priority, our goal, is that of worship. And sometimes it gets brushed off, but it's actually of the utmost importance. And we can't grow apart from it because we cannot live an obedient life under the Lordship of Christ apart from it. It's that serious. And that's why we can't ever grow tired of this reminder that we see from David continually of, I will bless the Lord. Let that be our anthem. Let that be what comes forth from our mouths continually. We will praise the Lord. We will be a people of praise. He goes on to say and shows us the extent to which this worship takes place. My soul makes boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And when he speaks of his soul, he is speaking of the seat of his affections. Of all of who he is, he is bringing to all of who he is, he is bringing to worship. And when he says, let the humble hear and be glad, Many commentators note that this is right here referring to those that have been humbled. And specifically as David reflects back on being rescued and being completely at the mercy of God in a difficult situation, he was certainly humbled. He was continually at that point on the run from Saul who was trying to kill him. He was under such... A danger that he actually goes to Gath, which was the home of Goliath. And he tries to seek refuge there. It was a desperate time. He had been humbled. But notice what he says. Let the humbled hear and be glad. He's calling others that have found themselves in a desperate situation. And now he's calling them to hear of this of what he will do, to be glad in it. And notice what he says. He invites us all together to join him. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's our invitation to praise. That's our invitation to worship. And specifically, David's experience was a was a testimony to God's promise to preserve him. And the Lord was fulfilling that promise in David's life and throughout David's life. And it reaches its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us praise the Lord that He is our covenant-keeping God who keeps His promises.
And then we see here in this idea of David looking back on a, on a difficult situation, it means this idea of praise and worship is our encouragement. So what do we do in a difficult situation? What can be a means of uplifting us when times are rough? Is it to pull away from the congregation of the saints? No, actually, the, the Bible tells us we're to draw together in worship. And so much the tendency is that when there's difficulties arise, we pull away and isolate. But the scriptures all call us to come together. If you ever read of the Puritans and their preaching schedule, or you read of their diaries, what is fascinating to me is that they will bury a child on Saturday and they're there preaching their funeral after preaching a service on Sunday morning. Many times they would lose their wives and they would be there preaching still. And you think about it, just the littlest things throws us off to where we can't assemble. But what God's Word is telling us here is that we can hear and be glad through that continual praise of the Lord. That the Lord has not only given us worship because He is worthy of worship, but it's also a means for us of being glad and getting through these difficult times. Worship is a time of encouragement. The last thing we want to do would be to pull from that. That's why David says, let us exalt his name together. Let us come together to do this. And when he says magnify, that is focusing on the graceness of our God. And specifically, as David looks back on a situation, we have to look at this all together in its totality. Magnify God is to magnify the greatness of who he is. Worship then is for because of who God is. But David looks back on an experience of what God has done. Our worship of God is for who God is and for what God has done. What has God done? Well, if you are in Christ, He has saved you from the pits of hell. That's what He has done. He has accomplished that fully in His Son. That should elicit praise, should it not? Not only... Does it elicit praise? It is a continual one that comes forth from our lips. And it always brings us back when we are praising the Lord of who He is, who we are, and our need for Him. But I love this idea here that I think emerges by implication of this. When one fervently rejoices in the Lord... This has an influence on others to likewise join in. In other words, we spur one another on to worship. I think this is why we see in the New Testament, Paul says we are to actually sing to one another. What happens if we were all timid in, in let's say, singing? 
And, and I'm not relegating worship to just singing. Worship is the whole service. It's a whole response to the revelation of God. So the primary aspect of worship is the preaching of the Word, where God's Word is. But what, what happens when you have someone singing and then you have another person singing? You have a little bit more courage to sing in that, don't you? And then we join in that together. But because of one person doing that, it actually helps the rest of us. And so it's that same idea is that as we gather with that excitement to worship the Lord, as we gather in this, in this time, we can actually encourage one another by how we approach it. So my self as an individual can have an impact on the collective whole. Likewise, certain attitudes can also bring it down on the whole, can't it? It can take everyone down a notch. No one wants to, you know, the person that maybe is upset all the time or easily angered, it can take it down a notch. I think this is an invitation for us to consider how is it that we approach worship? with the reverence and the joy that we're called to. And so then David tells us why. For the rest of this psalm, he tells us why we ought to worship the Lord. And he begins in in verses 4 through 7 by telling us of his experience. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And that word, that word delivered, is, it's the idea of snatched. He, he snatched me out of it. And specifically, this was David's flight to Gath. And you see that in 1 Samuel chapter 21. I just want to just draw attention to it. As David, it says in verse 10, He rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him and dance as Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors and the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? The next chapter tells us that David then departed. And David resorted to foolish behavior, but ultimately, as he looks back on this, he doesn't count his behavior as, the, as why he was rescued, but ultimately, he was rescued in the Lord. Now, how do we understand this? Well, Calvin helps us. Calvin says this, The deliverance, therefore, was the work of God, but the intermediate sin which is on no account to be excused, out was ascribed to David. And so in other words, what David did in his sinfulness, 
That's ascribed to him. Did God use that to deliver him? Yes, but in the ultimate sense, it is God who saves him. David doesn't look back on what he did. He looks back on what God did for him. He says, I sought the Lord. He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. And that's key, because what did we read in 1 Samuel? He took this thing to heart that they were saying. I mean, David was fearful. Fear had captured his heart. And so he went to the Lord, and the Lord answers him, and snatched him out of all of his fears. He says, those, now look at this, he says, this is what I did. And David's going to do this throughout this psalm many times, I want you to see this. This is what I did. Look what he says in verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. In other words, David says, this is what I did, God rescued me, but all people who look to the Lord shall be rescued in the same way. He says that they will have radiant face. And you think of Moses coming down from Sinai and his face shone. Isaiah chapter 60 speaks of the radiance that comes from the Lord. That those that look to the Lord are radiant. You think of the ironic blessing in number 6. And you think of that amazing statement. May the Lord's face shine upon you. It's not just for David. But to all who look to the Lord shall be clothed with the radiance of His presence and majesty. Look what he says. Their faces shall never be ashamed. That's an amazing statement for someone that did something foolish. Praise God that our shame is taken away from us. Look what he says in verse 6, continuing on this. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And he calls himself the poor man because he had no resources. And I want you to notice, again, he's speaking of his own experience is speaking of what happens to him. When he says of he saved out of all of his troubles, it's as if he was he was tied up. He had no way out. And this poor man. But I want you to notice what it says this poor man did. This poor man had communion and access to the creator of the heavens and the earth. This one that was distraught and troubled up or tied up and, and in his troubles, he had access to the throne of grace. What an amazing picture. 
Well, what an amazing picture that is given to us in Christ, as we are told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is our mediator, because he ever lives to intercede on behalf of his church, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, we too can go to the Lord. We too are that poor man without any resources of our own, but full dependence upon the Lord to be rescued. He says, this poor man, that is speaking of himself, but notice what he says in verse 7. This is what happened with me, but verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Meaning... This is my experience with God and salvation, but this is yours too. This isn't just for me, but it's for those who fear the Lord. He delivers them. And what is this idea? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And you can just get the picture as the Israelites are, 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 are leaving Egypt and the, the army of Pharaoh is pursuing them and the Lord is standing between them, protecting them. As Israel was fleeing from Pharaoh. They had no way to defend themselves against a world power. They had nothing by which to defend themselves at all. And they didn't need it because the Lord stood between them. That's the picture. As the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Now I want you to notice in this, what we've seen. We have been given three reasons here to praise the Lord. He hears our prayers. He causes our face to be radiant. His angel surrounds them to protect and deliver those who fear him. Now notice what happens in verse 8. We're given... We're given an invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is also quoted in 1 Peter. Which in 1 Peter, it's really the idea of the beginning of faith in the life of the believer. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Many ways to look at what that means. We are called to savor the goodness of our God. But to taste and see is really to actually make a judgment. What do you do when you taste food? You taste to see if it's any good. The invitation is for us to test this. What's the implication? It proves true. That's the confident call for us to look to the Lord's goodness. And this is really the mark of faith of the faithful. Is that they know the Lord is good and they rely upon His goodness. 
we're not without an idea of what that means because he has given us his word to guide us in what that means. How do we live our lives? Well, we are to live our lives through a biblically, a biblical world view. And sometimes that goes counterculture, doesn't it? And when that's difficult, the, the invitation is then taste and see that the Lord is good. When we are faced with options that will be difficult to make and knowing the, the right thing to do, following the Lord, we're called to, at that point, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you'll find out that the Lord is good in that. That following His Word is never something that we regret. But rejecting His Word is something guaranteed you will always regret. Look what he says. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. That is to be anchored in God. Blessed by looking to the Lord and not our own means of salvation. And David gives us many blessed statements. He said in the previous one, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He says here, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in God, the one who seeks God as his only means of salvation. That's the happy man. That's the blessed man. Is the one that goes to the Lord and forsakes anything. I loved how we sing Rock of Ages prior to this, because Rock of Ages so clearly says that we bring nothing. It's purely looking to the Lord as our refuge. It's purely in Him. David goes on to tell us why. He says, oh, fear the Lord. And by the way, we, we have a string of imperatives. We have a string of commandments that, that come and follow this. Begins with, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. And here's the contrast the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I want us to see this idea here. Those who fear the Lord, his saints, those are the holy ones that are set apart by Christ. Those who fear him, they have no lack. Those who are in total dependence upon the Lord. They lack nothing. But then look at the contrast. The young lions, that is a predatory animal that is incredibly strong, that, that is dependent upon no one but its own self. It's a lion. And look what he says. They suffer want and hunger. So look at the contrast. Those who are dependent upon the Lord and fear Him, they lack nothing. But those who are dependent upon just themselves, who have all of the appearance of strength, who have all of the power that they, they, could, they could want, they suffer and they have lack. That's the contrast. Look what he says, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
They lack nothing. It's the Lord's provisions over His people. How many of us this evening can attest to the fact that the Lord has provided for you all that you have? He has. Look what He goes on to say. He's going to call us to listen to Him and what this means to fear the Lord. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. You can just picture David speaking as king to the nation of Israel. He speaks to them as a father to them, and he says, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. I will teach you what this means. So he's going to teach us what does it mean to fear the Lord. Now, as we get to verse 12, all the way on through chapter or through verse 16, we find this is quoted again in 1 Peter in chapter 3 as a way of how we live life as Christians. So Peter, Peter takes this and applies this to living the Christian life. And so we can't say, well, that's Old Testament, that's New Testament. No, actually, this is what it means to live the Christian life. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? The answer is all of us. That's a rhetorical question. It assumes an answer of yes, we all do. Do we not all want to live many days and have good life? Yes. The answer is yes. We don't have to be ashamed of saying that, that we want to have and live a happy life, that we want to see many days, that we want to see the next generation grow. That's a good thing. That's something that we see put in our hearts. So look what he says. The means for that is keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You want to have a happy life? Look, this is, this is not some goofy thing that you hear from a TV preacher that says that what's going to make you happy is having a bunch of wealth. That will just give you a headache. What it's telling us is this is calling us to actually live in fear of God, and in that, you have a happy life. Look what he says. How you do this is keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. In other words, it's referring to what comes out of our mouth. The Bible speaks a lot about what comes out of our mouth, how we talk to one another, whether we gossip or not. It has a lot to say about what comes out of our mouths. But then he goes on to say this, is watch what you say. Then he says, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. How do we do good? What's the standard of good? What's the standard of good? Well, we have a perfect law that has been given to us of how to love our neighbor. Not only do you not just murder them, but you see that, that you're, you promote the fullness of their life. You don't covet their things. But you rejoice when they are prosperous and healthy. You're to love your neighbor. That is doing good. 
Look what he goes on to say. Seek peace and pursue it. If peace is the absence of hostility, we have to admit this, that peace is very difficult. But that's why we see here, this command is in peace, is that we are called to actually pursue it. You are to be working for peace. This is why Paul says that if we can, at all costs, live peaceably. It's something to pursue. It takes considerable work. This is how we are to live life. He goes on to give us another set of contrasts. In verse 15 and 16, he says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. Now look at verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory from them from the, of the earth. Now I want you to see this. He says that those who are righteous, he hears them. But those that do evil, his face is actually turned against them. Does this not explain the idea of living a long life and seeing good? And again, that's poetic language of how we are to live life and something that we all desire and how we are to live the days that we are given. He has said, keep your tongue from evil. He says, turn away from evil. Then in verse 16, he says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And so as we try to think of what does that mean to see good in my day and to have happiness of this day, it's probably to not have God's wrath resting on you. But actually to have his eyes toward the righteous where he hears their cry. And these verses are contrasting one another. Protection versus destruction. Look what he says in verse 17. This promise, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. How do we pray in a time of distress? How do we pray in a time of distress? Well, what we see here is that the righteous cry out to the Lord. I think of this prayer as Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. And from the belly of the fish, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and flood. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope instead of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then that fish vomited Jonah up onto the sea, out of the sea. He cried out to him in distress. That's the picture of the righteous being heard by the Lord and the Lord delivering them out of their troubles. So how do you pray in distress? It's simply this. Go to the Lord and cry out to Him. Just go to Him. And you have this beautiful promise. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And the idea in verse 18 is that one has reached utter hopelessness, desperation. The, the end is near for them. And what is the promise of this? Because when we're facing affliction, sometimes the gut reaction for people is to think, God must be far away from me. But that's not what the Bible tells us. When we're facing difficulties in life, we sometimes think, oh, where's God? Well, look what it says. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. His presence is with them. He draws near to them, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Rather than thinking He's far away, we actually see that He is very near. He goes on to say, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Here's the reality of life. There is affliction, and you will not escape it. It will come. It's already come. You've all experienced forms of affliction in your life. But the beauty of the Psalms, and particularly this Psalm here, is that we are reminded of two things. You experience affliction, but God is watching over you. You will experience trouble, but God is near you. You will face hard times, but the Lord has never deserted you. He knows what you need, and He knows how to shape you in your need. And we see this wonderful promise that I hope puts it all together for us. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Spurgeon says this on this verse, eternity will heal their wounds. Their real self is safe. They may have flesh wounds, but no part of the essential fabric of their being shall be broken. Spurgeon understands this poetically to say that while you may be harmed, who you are, your soul is intact. 
And so in other words, it is a spiritual protection because we have literally seen the righteous persecuted with broken bones. But you can never be broken. That's that promise there. But specifically, this points us to a greater promise. And because of the greater promise, it makes the other promise true. This is a promise of Christ. What do I mean that this is a promise of Christ? What is the institution of the Passover? Of the Lamb. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The Passover Lamb's bones could not be broken. What do we know about the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross? In John chapter 19, verse 36, For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. Why do we have deliverance? Why do we have the promise of God's presence? How is it that we are able to cry out to the God who brought forth all things into existence by the mere power of His Word? Why is it that we are called saints? How is it conceivable that there is such a thing as the righteous when we know that we are sinful? Because none of His bones were broken. Because upon the cross, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God took away the sin of the world and gives His own, His righteousness. And not one of His bones were broken. He who cried out to the Lord was delivered. And in Him, and in Him alone, we have deliverance. When we look at this idea of escape, of deliverance, we have to see it not in this temporal sense. We have to see this applied in eternity. And friends, I hope that we can get that view of eternity in our hearts. For God has put eternity in our hearts. And he gives us one final contrast in this between verses 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Notice what he says. The wicked, they're condemned, but those in whom know the Lord they will not be condemned. In other words, those who are justified in God's sight by the blood of Christ are not condemned. 
That is those who have taken refuge in the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. They will not be condemned. That is the only means of righteousness in our life is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way that David could be righteous. That is the only way that he could call there to be saints is because they were looking forward to the Messiah. We look back on what he has accomplished. And so you see this idea, those who are in Christ, those who have been considered righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, they will be delivered. But those who do not know Christ will not. They will be condemned. And you also see here a reality of life that teaches us why that pursuit of peace is so difficult. Because I want you to notice it. And those who hate the righteous, notice what it says, those who hate the righteous. Why is this so difficult to pursue peace? Because there are those that hate the righteous. The Lord Jesus warns of this, but what does the Lord Jesus tell us to do of our enemies? To hate them back? To love them? To feed them? By doing so, you will heap burning coals upon them. We are to pursue peace with all because we are recipients of peace. And because we are recipients of peace, we are to take peace to this world and to live by it Because that is the only means of peace in this world is for people to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us live according to that peace that we have been granted in Christ. And let us be reminded that when we face hard times, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And He saves the crushed in spirit. If you're brokenhearted today, the Lord is near. If you face struggles, the Lord is near. And He is near in His Son, our Savior. Heavenly Father, we praise You for the promises of Your Word and the reminders that we are given of why we ought to worship and praise You, the importance of assembling to worship, with one another as we consider your goodness to us and your goodness so clearly spelled out and that you offer peace through the shed blood of Jesus. Father, may we be a people that pursue peace always. May our hearts be softened towards our neighbor that we may share with them the peace that we have in Christ and that reconciliation has been accomplished in the cross. We praise you for this day that we could worship you, that we could gather as you've called us to do and to praise your holy name for you are worthy for who you are. And we praise you for what you have done. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray.